UAG Talks, Gastroenterology to Go. Welcome to our GI podcast. Listen for fresh insights and perspectives in science, education, and professional development. Welcome to this episode of the UAG Talks. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Pradeep Mundre, and I'm your host for today. Now, today we are discussing about the journey from a new idea to a product in the context of endoscopy accessories. Now, whenever I go to international meetings, I always make it a point to go around the industry stands to look for any products I'm familiar with and any new product launches. And I often uh, do a review on this and post on social media. And most companies do big product launches in big meetings, actually. And I would strongly encourage others to look at industry stands because there's a lot to learn from. Now, talking to the industry, I always find that products have taken many years in the making and huge amounts of money have been invested in developing a new product. And they constantly go back and improve or change these products depending on the feedback from the experts. Now, but what happens behind the scenes is not very well known to frontline staff like us. And I always feel the need to learn this from this process. And I feel that understanding this for our listeners perhaps uh, helps them to take the new ideas further and maybe even become innovators. Uh, I think there's always this fear of unknown that holds so many of us back to be innovators or to take any new idea to the next level, basically. Now, today's discussion is about this topic, a journey from an idea to a product. Now, today's guest is Professor Alexander Mining, who is the professor and head of gastroenterology at Würzburg University in Germany. Professor Mining has been instrumental in bringing us the over-the-scope grasper for pancreatic necrosectomy and the bougie cap. He has contributed significantly to endoscopy research, and I'm so pleased to have him in our studio today. Alexander, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Pradeep, for the invitation. It's a great honor and pleasure to uh, have this interview together with you. Excellent. Alexander, I feel new ideas always start with a problem, which we face on a day-to-day basis. Some of us recognize this and want to do something about it. And some of us, depending on the situation, ignore and get along with the constraints that we're faced with, especially when doing complex endoscopy procedures or even simple procedures for that matter. Now, can I ask you, how do you in your practice identify such problems? Probably the same as you identify them and then as everybody's identifying them that um, does a lot of endoscopy because there are a lot of problems. And of course, uh, you should not be one of those that ignores the problem. And um, for the sake of our patients and also for, for us um, that we want to keep things simple and avoid complexity, um, it's always worth to think about what can be better or what can we do by ourselves or maybe give some input to others to um, decrease these problems that we have on a daily basis, as you said. Now, do you have an organized way to compile the list of problems or the issues that you come across and, and I guess more, more so the ideas that you come across? Because often 
I feel when you identify the problem, you are in a stressful situation, you may not have time. Uh, I just wondered in your practice, how do you normally take things further? Do you action it then and then, or you kind of have some sort of sessions that you wait for to kind of brainstorm and things like that? Yeah, it's 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 not really uh, organized. It's it's uh, more or less um, depending on on time and and also on the complexity and the problem that you are identifying. So for me personally, I once started having a whole list. I think it was about two pages long with all the problems and where I was looking for solutions. Of course, um, it's still a lot of work to do, but then maybe you have to focus on some specific things. And maybe then you have some ideas to overcome these specific problems. And then the next step is really um, think about it and, and have ideas, have some sort of lateral thinking and thinking outside of the box. And, and, and yeah, then it starts. Okay. It's almost like you have a huge list and you kind of action on certain things which you think may be feasible or maybe make a big change. No, it's more or less what is feasible, of course. Um, okay. And then, and then sometimes you also have to think like um, maybe maybe some things they are as they are, so so you cannot really change them. Uh, I don't know whether I can give you an example, for example, about like sphincterotomy. I mean, you know, sphincterotomy has been there for fifty years, yeah, and we're still using the same instruments. We still have problems post ERCP pancreatitis, so there might be two questions or, or to answers to the question the one thing is that there is no better way yeah or just um nobody has ever thought about it which i don't think is um realistic because if there is a device already for more than 50 years on the market so maybe it's just the problem we have and there is no real solutions could be okay for me it's very interesting to see how you think uh, even with the day-to-day routine things and it asks me how you how the, your thought process is very interesting so what would be your first step? Let's say if you're faced with a problem and uh, you think of an idea to solve a problem, what would be your first step? Do you try and go about doing it yourself or do you get some help? How's the process? The first step is that you try to visualize your ideas. Okay. So what I, I always do, I have this, this notebook and then I just make drawings in the notebooks as probably everybody does uh, when you have some idea you try to visualize it because that helps you thinking about the concept and then once you have a nice drawing that is able to explain the problems and also maybe also the solution you have for the problems then what i like to do is uh, i put it on these whiteboards make it bigger and then i can walk around it and i can also ask other th- and ask them, what do you think about it? I'm just looking here at my room because there is a whiteboard and there are already some drawings you're not able to see. Um, for maybe um, that's about um, cyst drainage, um, but uh, that's the way I do it, you know? So I draw it on the whiteboard and then I ask other people, maybe um, colleagues or also engineers or maybe also industry representatives. And then I show them this is the problem and this might be a concept. So what do you think about that? Okay. So let's say, I guess, Alexander, you will have a team of people who would help you. Let's say there's somebody out there who is starting off new, fresh, Mm -hmm. and who don't have all this team or the support and whatever. So how do they start off? Uh, And maybe you can give your own example of how your own journey started uh, uh, when you started all this 
Yeah, of course, uh, when, when, when it started for me, I did not have a, a team at all. So I was just trying to fix things together and have very, very um, simple prototypes from uh, tools or devices that you can get in the supermarket or, or whatsoever. Oh, wow. um, but but <laughs> usually these never work at all. So for me personally, one of the major, major breakthrough in these um development process or development circle because it is more or less a circle um, was uh, 3d printing okay uh, because when you have a 3d printer this is just a perfect thing that you have your ideas and then you have these 3d printed prototypic concepts that really give you a much much better impression on, on the solutions you're looking for so this is really something very very helpful at least it was for me and i was starting with 3d printing now i think about eight years ago something like that okay. and i'm still using it a lot even more than at the beginning okay cool and how enthusiastic when you approach these engineers the industry how enthusiastic are they let's say <laughs> Uh, you know, you, you've got a reputation, then they'll, they'll be very amenable to you. Maybe for somebody out there who's fresh, are, are these people amenable that they work with you? Because at the end of the day, it's your problem, not theirs. You're going to them for solutions. Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, the thing is, probably most time you're talking with the wrong people. Uh, because when you contact companies, for example, usually you contact the, the marketing people. Okay. And they're always nice uh, and never unfriendly. And so what they will say is, oh, that's interesting. Uh, I, I, I take it with me and I will ask somebody. And then it probably is just left somewhere. So forget it. Make the story shorter. Uh, so usually the best thing is always that um, maybe ask somebody that is a little bit long already in that process or in that development process and ask those people, do you know somebody whom I might contact with that particular solution I have for this problem? Okay. And that's probably helpful. And what also helps, in my opinion, is that you should not directly go to the larger companies because um, they are much too complicated. Yeah. Uh, if you have a smaller company where you really know the right people to talk to, uh, they are more interested in, in, in what you'll present them as, as the larger companies because they have sometimes hundreds of engineers. And if you go to them and ask them, well, I have a good idea for that solution, they will say, well, okay, this is nice, but the engineers will say, forget it. So um, okay. basically what I want to say is if, if you're really convinced about that, which you should be because otherwise you should not really um, further follow that concept. Then you should uh, ask the right persons. And most times you'll find these persons in the smaller companies. Okay. I guess the larger the company, the more, uh, more the bureaucracy. And the exactly. That's also, that. also, yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, do you normally look for solutions in your day-to-day? -day? I think you mentioned earlier about, you know, supermarket solutions when you started off. And <laughs> yeah. so do you look for solutions in your day-to-day -day, uh, or do you just always rely on the professionals who are methodical and kind of suggest your ideas, uh, solutions, I mean? I think all of us doing endoscopies, they have their solutions on a day-to-day -day, uh, life or 
you don't always have to have a, a fancy new prototype for, for something like that. Sometimes you just find very easy solutions, which are absolutely okay. I mean, the, the critical issue, does it work and does it help you to treat your patient better? Yeah. And it's always good. Um, and, and, you know, we, we endoscopists, we, we like to, to, to play it around a little bit and we like to have tools in our hands. Um, so, uh, of course, it is, it's always good to, to find solutions um, in your day-to-day life. It doesn't always have to be a fully product with CE mark and, and mechatronic device and fancy materials or whatsoever. Sometimes even simple things can help you a lot. Okay. Just try it out and do not harm the patient. I think that's the, the, the message. Okay, cool. And I guess, say, let's you come up with the idea to solve a problem and uh, a potential product, let's say, at this type, uh, this time. Can you explain the next process? Uh, you know, uh, personnel involved, the facilities that you need, the finance, manpower, how long it'll take, you know, kind of some idea about these things for to get to a prototype, let's say. Yeah. So, so the, the, the best thing is, of course, if you have these engineers in-house or in your university or wherever and, and contact them because they are much better in rapid prototyping or in prototyping as probably we are, even if you use a 3D printer. Um, so um, this is probably the best solution. And then, um, and then what you always should do is that um, you should sit together and you should continuously work on these concepts and new ideas that um, derive from previous ideas. So there is that term that is known in, in engineering. I think it's called concurrent engineering. So you do not have a timeline that you start on day X and then you finished on day Y. So you have more this circle process that you always look for a solution based on the previous prototype and okay. always communicate with those that are building the prototype and at the end try to make this a product and bring it on the market, more or less. But that takes time. And of course, it's uh, then it's also a costly procedure because that's not only done by a simple 3D printing that costs a couple of cents or euros. That's uh, a little bit more um, tricky than at the end and more expensive. So you're trying to say that you go through several designs before you get a prototype to test even at that stage. Exactly. Okay. And then you have to, to have it always in your, your hand and, and simulate uh, what you do with it. And, uh, and that's always the concept. And then communicate, communicate, communicate. And don't wait for the finished product when you start with an idea. It's, it's a process. It's a circle. Okay. Yeah. So let's say if you have a product and uh, a sort of prototype and mm-hmm. you want to test this, mm-hmm. can you... Give, maybe you can give examples of maybe Bootcamp or you know, mm-hmm. something you've been involved in in the past. And you know, how do you test these? Where? Uh, what do you need? What facilities you need? Uh, and all that. So if you say a few words on that. Mm-hmm. So I remember for the because you were mentioning the Bootcamp for the Bootcamp tests, I was just using simple tubes where I put a gummy ring in the tube to simulate a stenosis. Okay. So very simple sometimes, yeah. but that's often very helpful so that you just, because you know the, the rigidity you have to apply, you know the diameter of a stricture. So sometimes very simple um, 
prototyping yeah. simulators, let's call it like that, yeah. uh, they, they, they help you. Sometimes you can even 3D print these simulators as well, okay. which is also helpful. And then next thing would maybe be the wet lab, meaning maybe organs from the animal. But then the problem is then how can you simulate uh, maybe diseases in these organs that are taken from healthy pigs so, uh, but still, this gives you a feeling on how the prototype is in more real living. And then, of course, then the next step would be uh, to go into an animal lab with a living pig yeah. model. Uh, but then this is rather costly. And then the question is also, is it really necessary? It depends on what you're looking for. Okay. If you uh, maybe you're looking for a resection device where you um, are afraid of bleeding, Hmm. then, of course, you probably need a, a living animal model because uh, otherwise you cannot really uh, see whether that will cause any bleedings. Uh, if you look for something like, for as mentioned before, pancreatic necrosectomy, uh, the, the animal probably model is probably senseless okay, yeah. <laughs> because it's rather <laughs> unlikely that you have a pig that has a pancreatic necrosis. Yes, so yeah. Then you have to, to look more for, for custom-made simulators where you simulate the necrotic cavity or something like that. Oh, interesting. Okay. Uh, that does look, you know, even to reach this stage, there's a lot of work involved and probably a lot of money. Mm. Can I ask you who funds, like where, where, where would one approach, you know, you can't pay from your own pockets. Mm. Who, who funds these things, the university, or do you start approaching the industry at this time? Or? Well, there are two possibilities. The first one is that you approach the industry, and when they're very interested and they, they want to make it a product, then, of course, they will pay for that. Okay. What you can also do, and I also have experience doing so, is that you apply for research grant on governmental um, agencies or something like that okay. and then uh, really say that we want to bring this from the idea to the prototype and at least in my country in Germany there are some uh, research funds that are particularly designed exactly for that um, concept that you have an idea as a clinician and you try to involve sometimes even smaller companies and for this you get funding for a certain period of time which is quite um, nice. Okay, cool. So you've, you've reached to this point where you know you've got a prototype that you know it works. Now, I guess the next step is kind of feasibility of use of this in humans and mm -hmm. possibly the efficacy depends on what you're testing. So can you give us an idea how you go about doing this? Do you try with in a single center? You try, approach your friends and just you know, what is involved in this and how many years it might take to to do this, uh, this part of the, the development. Yeah. Um, so, of course, if you want to um, test it in humans, um, it has to have a, a CE mark um, okay. because otherwise you might have some problems if anything happens with that. And then, of course, uh, the next step or what I'm always doing is that you have a sort of feasibility study on that, meaning that you'll um, do maybe 10 to 20 patients in this in my center or in your center. Okay. Uh, and then your um, next step would be to publish the feasibility study. 
And then, of course, next thing would be to have some sort of a multi-center registry, um, something like that, or okay. ask other, ask your friends, ask the ones you you know that they're also interested in these sort of solutions for for that specific problems. And um, so that would be the next step. Um, a multicentric study. Uh, also ask others on your experience. Never trust on your own experience because that might be misleading. And yeah. uh, if somebody else tells you this is cool, then it's good. If somebody tells you, well, this is nice, but it doesn't help me at all. So you might think about whether you really made the right steps. Or maybe you should even think about modification of the product, which is not unusual it makes sense the larger experience others or the more experience others have with your early product the more reasonable is to think about uh, modifications and uh, you were mentioning bougie caps at, at yeah. the beginning now we have a bougie cap 2.0 because uh, the first bougie cap had some limitations yeah. and i did not really realize those limitations but um, other colleagues like maybe you or wherever on the world they realized that oh, this is nice but it does not always work so nice so you have to modify it and that's the way it goes and that's the way it should go okay so in terms of funding going by what you've already said uh, you it's either you get funds from the industry at mm -hmm. this stage, or you kind of get funding from the research grants, basically, even at this stage. Is that what your thoughts are on this? Exactly, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, let's say you've got, you've tested everything, you've got an amazing product in hand, let's say uh, a Bucci cap or a full thickness resection device, mm -hmm. and you've proved that it works, it's feasible, it's effective. How do you go about spreading the knowledge about these things uh, so that, you know, because you've done your hard work, you've spent you know five years coming to this point, and it's so important for others in similar situation to be able to benefit from this. So, so how do you spread this knowledge, and what what you know, any ways do you do personally? Well, of course, um, medical publication, as mentioned before, that's that's certainly very important. Uh, what's also often helpful and. Uh, I know there is a debate about that, but what certainly for new prototypes, new products, not prototypes, new products help is uh, if you have the chance to show it on a live demonstration okay. on an international congress or something like that. This is always extremely helpful if the product uh, works well then because uh, then everybody sees the product in action or live. Yes. And uh, then the other thing is, I mean, if the companies is selling that, uh, they have their um, marketing people to take care of that, uh, spread it on the, um, the rest of the world and, hmm. <laughs> and see what will happen. Yeah? Okay. <laughs> so that's, that's uh, you know, it does generate the, the interest, especially when you showcase your product in, uh, in live endoscopy. It does generate a lot of interest in, in similar-minded people to, I guess, test it further uh, in, the, in the market and then come up with more more data on that. Now, Alexander, it's all well and good getting some fancy products with some fancy names to the market. Uh, what are your views on homemade alternatives for use in practice? I mean, the you already mentioned supermarket products and products you buy on Amazon. Mm. And some products that you create from existing devices, let's say. You know, for example, 
you know, I use dental bands for ESD traction and with clips, and they work remarkably well. You know, sometimes I pay 200 to 200 pounds for a traction device, and these work equally well for pennies, basically. So what's your, what's your view on these things? No, it's it's absolutely makes sense. Definitely, uh, you always should be creative and to find find solution. And uh, the funny thing is, you were talking about that dental band for traction, and there is now even a, a special clip designed by a company that oh. has already a dental band <laughs> attached <laughs> to the clip. So, see, sometimes uh, the simple things they also will make it to a product uh, which might then help because then it is CE marked, and uh, that's probably. Yeah. better um, if it's not extremely expensive but because what sometimes also happens that you have these bands they, that cost nothing and as soon as it's a product then they cost uh, i don't know several yeah. 70 euros something like that or 80 euros or something like that you know um, so that's the other uh, side of the the, the, the coin But um, coming back to your question of course be creative find solutions definitely Yeah. Think outside of the box and then and, and look for something that helps. Yeah. And I guess especially in resource-poor countries or even in, yep. in, in, in my practice, let's say, if a manager say, okay, we can't approve that, then you want your patient's best interest in mind. And if something helps, you would you would go alternative ways, I guess. Absolutely. I think sometimes we can even learn a lot from these uh, countries where they don't, do not have so much money because they have a lot of creative solutions for problems. Yeah. And uh, that often helps, honestly. Yeah. 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 That's, so that's what the uh, important in international meetings is uh, talking to people, the doctors who, or, the, or the endoscopists who perform these procedures and discuss the ideas. And it, it's amazing what you learn from these discussions. Fully agree. <laughs> a yeah. chat over a beer. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, Alexander, before we conclude, do you have any final pieces of advice or final words about this topic? Well, I think most of it has been said already. I think uh, we, we, we should not be, um, we should always be critical. We should not uh, believe too many things. We should think outside box and, and be critical and if there is some marketing guy telling you this is the best solution for all your problems, Be critical. Think about it. And uh, try to find solutions by yourself. And uh, do not wait until something is popping up on the market. Try to find solutions. And then, of course, um, yeah, then it might sometimes be a little bit difficult. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of talks. But you should not be disheartened. You should just, um, yeah. Um, yeah. If you're really convinced about that, yeah. Um, You should should follow it, and 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 sometimes it works quite well with uh, the methods as I described before. Um, think about three D printing, rapid prototyping, yeah. contact the right people, and then I think uh, it it might work. Not always. I also have a lot of of, of disappointing um, ideas that uh, disappeared somewhere, um, but uh, some thing some things maybe they work and they become then the added the product which. Of course, this is the best thing that can happen for everybody of us. Okay, I guess don't just accept the way things are. There must be must be things out there or things that you can do to sort out the issue. Alexander, 
It's been wonderful talking to you today. Uh, thank you so much for um, giving us an insight into this difficult topic, and I found it fascinating. Uh, I'm sure it's been inspirational for so many young innovators out there listening to this podcast. Uh, some people have been on the edge, itching to do something, but people probably sometimes held back due to fear of the unknown. And um, thank you for giving us insight into the world, which which we don't know as mainstream clinicians. Thanks again. Thank you, Pratip. It was nice to talk to you. Thank you.